Hello and welcome back to the Coleman's podcast. Today the lads are chatting to Irish international soccer player Jason McIntyre. We are really excited about this one, so sit back, relax and enjoy the podcast. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks a million for coming on. Uh, it's an honour no to talk to you. Uh, my name's John. Uh, I'm here with Evan, John, Mingham and Jack. So yeah, thanks very much Jason. No problem. Have, have we got any, um, before you start, have we got any Liverpool fans? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what, what else have we got? We got Manchester United fans. Yeah, yeah. No, que- no, no questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> right, go on then. Fire but, away. Um, yeah, it's good to chat to you. Um, you were first signed to Bolton at the age of twenty. Did your life change overnight when you got signed? Did my life change overnight? Um, well, yeah, it it, it certainly did. Um. We'll probably have to go go back, sort of give a little bit of a background to answer that question. Uh, I always wanted to be a footballer, as probably the majority of, of kids do growing up. Where I was from uh, was was a place just outside of Liverpool. Um, and it was back, sort of my, my growing up was very different to probably what yours was in the sense of no iPads, no uh, internet, no mobile phones, no social media. So I was literally, I wasn't kicked out the house. Well, yeah, I probably was kicked out the house by my parents to go and play football in the streets, in the parks. So it was a very cheap entertainment, but it was something that I had a passion for. So I always wanted to be a footballer, always dreamed of being a footballer. Liverpool was my team. Kenny Dalglish was my hero. Um, but back then, there was no academy system, which there is now. You know, the kids are taken from anywhere between five years of age right up to probably 12, 13, 14 and introduced into a school of excellence and then into an academy. Um, We didn't have that. Uh, We had a school of excellence, which is where you might go to a professional football club and you might have a couple of nights training. So I unfortunately didn't. I I was deemed not good enough. Uh, I played local football. I played for the school. I played for the county. Um, but I was kind of a, a bit of a, a late developer. So I was kind of a small kid um, and didn't really develop until later on in my teens, sort of like 16, 17, 18. So the trial, the trial period, which is where clubs will take you for a trial um, at 13, 14, I was really small, underdeveloped and probably a lot behind a lot of the other kids. So my progression into football was a bit of a strange one to be honest because when you get to sort of 18 19 20 you're kind of playing decent standard local football but you're nowhere near professional football um and I was playing for a team called Marine which was a, a semi-professional team so I was I was at college I was studying graphic design which I was terrible at um and just kind of working in a pub to earn a, a few quid. So I was a barman, collecting glasses, cleaning cellars and um, this kind of thing. And sort of, yeah, just just trying just trying to get on in life, really. And sort of letting my path develop, but without, without kind of knowing where I was going to go with anything. And then I went to America... Um, I was invited to America. My uncle lived there and I went over and had a couple of trials for American uh, universities and I got offered a scholarship in one university. So I came back in the December 
I was 20 years of age. I'd come back in December to England and I was just getting all my stuff sorted out. And I went back to play for Marine, which was a not, which was the semi-professional team. And I played against Bolton's A team, which was like their kids. And I had a really good game. And the manager said to me, listen, do you want to come down for a trial? I went down for the trial. And after three or four days of the trial, I was handed a professional contract. So I literally, when you say, did it change your life? If I hadn't have had this trial and been offered a six-month contract, then I probably would have ended up in America, possibly on a soccer scholarship, possibly. Um, but I certainly wouldn't be here now in front of you boys. Um, have we got any? Have we got any girls in in the class? No, are you all? You all? Right, okay, so so I would certainly not be in front of um, you guys if that hadn't happened. So yeah, definitely changed my life. So after Bolton, you were signed to Liverpool. Did you find that very pressuring, especially after you lost the Football League Cup to them in 1995? Or was it a dream as they were your own team as a kid? Um, yeah, that, that that's a good question, actually. It was bittersweet for me. Um, obviously, playing against Liverpool in the final was, was great. Um, losing the game at Wembley um, was not so great, but... As a, on a learning curve as an elite sportsman, you know, you learn more through adversity um, and losing, which I know is a strange thing. Winning creates an appetite, but also losing. Um, but you're left with a, a very sad feeling, a, re a real tough feeling, um, because you feel like you might never get back to Wembley. You might never get to another final. Will you ever experience this moment again? Um, so all them emotions go through your, your your mind when you lose the game. But I mean, you know, it was, I'd gone from 20, I was now 23. I'd just been capped for Ireland. So my, my curve of progression was very steep and very quick. Um, so I was kind of taking it, I was kind of taking it all in as, as much as you can in that scenario. I was kind of really inexperienced, but I kind of had to grasp every, I, I had Obviously, the World Cup in '94, um, you know, which was great, which was which obviously was coming at the end of the season. But I was, you know, I was playing for Ireland then, so playing in that final was amazing. Losing the game, not so great, but it was also classed as a bit of a trial game for me, as in Liverpool were watching me, and you know, they they apparently liked what they seen in that game, and that's what pushed them into signing me. Yeah, we had an old friend on the podcast last year, Niall Quinn, who you played with with Sunderland and Maryland. Are you still in touch yeah. with him? Yeah, we are. We are. We're very close. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably close to a, a handful of ex-players. Yeah. Um, Quinny is definitely one of those players, you know, and we, we have this relationship where, you know, a, a few of the boys, we, we might see each other for a long time, but as soon as we're back in each other's company, um, we, we just pick up where we left off. Left off. Um, Quinny, uh, as you probably have I've, I've, Come to, come to grasp in the interview was is, is such a um, an affable character. He's he's kind of very upfront. He's you know he's very open, um, and he's a class act. He holds himself really really well, and he's he's full of information. He's full of good stories. He's great company. Um, he's just a, an all round good guy. Quinny, uh, lots of time for him, um, but he's one of, he's one of the good guys. There's plenty of well not plenty, but there's a few bad guys. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but Quinny's definitely one of the good guys. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
So you made your Irish debut anyway in 1984. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the legendary Jack Tarleton as a manager. If you could describe him in one word for us, what would that word be? One Jack Charlton in one word. Yeah, it might be hard. Wow. Um, what would I call Jack Charlton in one word? <laughs> um, I would call Jack. Um, I'd probably call him infectious. Um, I think legend is, is too much of a broad word in the sense of which he was, but he was an infectious man in the sense of you would you would want to play for him. You would want to run through a brick wall for him. Um, he, he was more like your favourite uncle and you were always happy to see him, but there was all, always that element of fear in the background that he could give you a telling off at any stage if you did anything wrong. So, yeah, I, I, I loved him to bits. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, the film, the documentary, but if you haven't, you should watch it. it it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's a real good watch. One of your favourite managers you've worked under. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it always helps when you when you gain success from a manager and he picks you. Um, you know, when a manager doesn't pick you, they tend not to be your favourite. So, um, yeah, there was a few of them with, in my career. But Jack, you know, Jack was was very much at the beginning of my career um, and very much gave me a, a platform to, to, to grow. Um, and, you know, going the World Cup with the squad in 94 under Jack was, you know, probably the best six weeks of my life. Um, so, so yeah, I, Jack would be right up there as one of the best. In 2001, you scored the qualifying goal against the Netherlands. Yeah. For the World Cup to qualify. Arguably one of the most memorable moments in Irish sporting history. Tell us about it. How long have we got on this um, <laughs> on this Zoom? Um, I will tell you about the goal. Well, in all, in all honesty, I was I was not playing. I was I was having a bit of trouble. Um, I say trouble. I was having a few problems at club level. I was at Blackburn. I wasn't getting on with Graham Sooner. So I was having a few problems yeah. in and out the team. My form was up and down. Um, we. I'd gone through a couple of things in my personal life as well, which was, which was really tough. Um, so going away with Ireland was always a, a, a relief for me. It was like a release. So I'd get back with the lads, you know, a couple of pints of Guinness, then the game. And then, you know, it was kind of a bit of a reset to go back into, you know, the normal stuff back at home. Um, I, I turned up for the squad, not, not expecting to play in all honesty. Um, but Mick, Mick McCarthy is a manager that, He's kind of open-minded when he picks a team. So the squad comes in and you might be at the top of your game and you you might be not playing well. But if you train well during the first three or four days, he he tends to gauge whether you're fit to play in the team. And I, I trained really well that week. Um, I was really, really training well, on fire a little bit. And, um, you know, to, to when he named the team um, on the Friday... You know, I was in it, and I was I was pretty shocked to be honest. Mm-hmm. I roomed Lee Carsley the night before, who is he's now with the England under twenty ones. But Carso is he's a very even back when he was playing, he's a very very um, positive person. Like says lots of positive things, never negative. So having him as a room partner that the Friday night was was amazing. 
Saturday morning was great. And then Saturday is just your routine. When you when you're elite athlete, you you go into we call it match mode. So you know you you go in, you prepare, you do your own thing, you're in your own world, and you're you're mentally getting prepared for a football match, which for us was one of the biggest we we probably ever played in. Um, we start the game. It wasn't really going to plan. They were kind of on top, and then through your career, you realize sometimes you're playing games where you feel it's your day. You feel that it's just the momentum's with you. Maybe a little bit of lady luck is with you. Um, and we felt we we kind of grew into the game feeling like this. Um, unfortunately, Gary Kelly got booked early on. Roy was playing really well. I was in and out of the game. Robbie was playing well. Um, and then, you know, we, we get in our time nil-nil, which we felt a little bit lucky to do, but we, we were in the game. Second half, we came out, Gary Kelly gets sent off. And now we're like, right, we've got to hold on for, you know, half an hour here, try and get a draw. And then the ball goes out for a corner. I take the corner. And I kind of, I'm out of position, but we win the ball back. And I eventually end up at the back post, but the ball gets switched out to the right. It comes back in. And I think it's Damien Duff tries to flick it on, but he doesn't get a touch. If it had touched the ball, I would have had to have taken a touch to set myself to, to get the shot away. I might have lost the moment. I might have had a bad touch. But he misses the header. And I gauge it where... And a lot of instinct takes over. That's what you train for. Then moments. The body does its natural thing. And, um, you know, it was all about technique. It was a difficult technique, half volley on the spin. And I just had to... You know, I had a little bit of a postage stamp to get it in. And it was the perfect moment. It goes into the top corner. And um, as you probably are aware, by the celebration, a lot of emotion comes out. Um, the crowd, I, I, you know, I played in some big games in front of, you know, 120,000. I don't know what was in the stadium that day, maybe 50,000, but it, they, they seemed like 100,000. The, the crowd went up. Um, and then it was a matter of seeing out the game. And, and, and we did. And, you know, we, we went 1-0, won 1-0. Um, knocked yeah. the Dutch out, went into a playoff, and um, amazing. A, a good night, let's just say I had a good night. <laughs> uh, after the controversy in Saipan, did it take you and Roy a while to talk again, or is it all water under the bridge now? Well, the fact we still don't talk, I would suggest there's no water under any bridge at the minute. Um, yeah. Um, Roy, listen, Roy's a sportsman, you know, as an as a um, as a captain, as a teammate, phenomenal character. But as as you will, I mean, I don't know if you're if you become aware at your age. I don't remember it at my age, but when I was your age, but you, you'll find that you know we're all made up of different different things. You know, we 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 grow up in different environments, home lives, you know, circumstances, and it shapes us for who we are later on in life. And you know when you're a sportsman, you know, things that get me up for a football match or things that motivate me might be different than than anyone in that room. You, we're all individuals. Um and Roy is a Roy is a professional captain was I, I you know I I couldn't I couldn't ask for a better colleague player alongside me. Off the pitch we we just didn't we just didn't hit it off. He played for Man United, I played for Liverpool. 
we had different backgrounds, we had different ideas, we had different values, morals, concepts. You know, that's not to say he's right and I'm right, or I'm wrong, or vice versa. It just means that sometimes you just don't click. Um, we got on to the to the extent where we were civil and we we got on as teammates and we admired each other's achievements and you know professionalism, but as personalities we we struggled to hit it off. So when we when we played together we were great, but when we played against each other, which Sunderland Man United we did a few times, Liverpool Man United we clashed. Um, you know we clashed for different reasons. Um, but I, you know, I don't hold any grudges against Roy for being who he is. You know, you'd have to speak to him for the way he feels about me. But I certainly am an admirer of his. Um, you know, he makes me smile by some of the comments that he comes out with because I know him personally. So, you know, I, I can see when he's being Roy the character rather than Roy himself. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, if he... We live by each other now and we actually pass each other in restaurants and coffee shops. And yeah, it's it's tough because we don't speak, uh, but I have a lot of admiration for him. And I'm sure he does for me, you know, in, in his own in his own little world. Um, I know we talk about Jack Charlton and Mick McCarthy already, but is there any other managers yeah. in your career, club or country, that you had great respect for while you were playing for them? Or... Yeah, Mick McCarthy. Yeah. Um, Ex-captain of Ireland, played in the World Cup in '90. Um, very good man manager. Um, you know, very very nice person as well. You know, honest. Um, tells you as it is, um, but also can can take a you know can take a answer back. You know, some managers they don't like you to give your opinion. Um, he could accept. You know where you were coming from. Like I said, you might be right, but he would treat it like. Like it was an honest answer. Um, other managers, Peter Reid was a great man manager. Roy Evans, great man manager. Uh, the ones I struggled with was was kind of the ones who were very tactical, a bit school teacherish, in the sense of um, I've got to be careful because your teacher's probably listening to this, um, <laughs> and I'm sure she's great. Um, but they, when I say school teacherish, it's kind of like. It, it's kind of their way. Um, Gerard Houllier was like that. Graeme Souness was like that. And it can borderline on, you know, when you're an adult, it can borderline on bullying. And a lot of football managers, or not a lot of people, but certain football managers can be deemed bullies. But that was, you know, in an era when it was more acceptable to manage like that than, than what it is now. So, you know, it certainly changed. But I admired Roy Evans, yeah, Peter Reid. Mick, Mick McCarthy. Um, yeah, there was, I, I, managed, I played for some good ones, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so you've talked openly about how hard you found retirement. What advice would you have for sports personalities facing retirement and was there a hobby that helped you through the hard times? Um, advice for retiring sportsmen? Um, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a niche question, really, because um, you know, again, I go back to we're all we're all different characters with different makeups, um, but we all say share the same background in the sense of sport at that level is is quite it's quite regimental. It's quite a regimental um, job. 
it's you know you you work to times you train time you eat the right food you you know it's all it's all geared to winning winning at all costs whether it's tennis golf football rugby whatever it is uh, elite sport is is about winning there's no room for error there's no room for loss it's failure and you have to deal with that you know going through a you know a career where criticism is very, very difficult to deal with. You know, at the end of the day, I was 20 when I turned pro. You know, if you've got 50,000 people every week telling you you're rubbish, it's going to get to you at some point. So you've got to learn to grow a thick skin and you've got to learn to take positive criticism, react to it, and you've also got to be able to block out the noise. When you finish playing, um, you know, your life is, is, is changed dramatically. There's no training. There's no friends, as in, like, teammates um there's no regimented life um and mentally it can it can be a tough ask to just to get up in the morning to be honest um you know depression i think i think for sports people is is very very difficult because we don't know anything else like it's not like i can walk onto a building site and build a house or you know i i can't even put a shelf up i i don't even know how to work a washing machine so it's like, I mean, I do now, but when I finished, I didn't, which sounds terrible. But, you know, we, we, do, we do live in a, a very privileged position where, you know, we don't have to worry about them things. You know, when you, when you finish playing, all of a sudden you have to worry about them things because there's no, one, there's no one to run your life for you. So, yeah, it was very, very difficult. I found um, golf was what kind of kept a passion for me to like go on, go on a driving range and try and get better at golf. Or I would practice and practice and practice. I mean, I, I played got I played golf today. I played golf yesterday. You know, golf is my hobby, but it's my love, but it also keeps me sane. It keeps me mentally in check um, because I can get better at it. It's a regimental sport. I play to win and it fulfills the gap. And plus I'm not running around because I'm 50 now and my body just can't run around anymore. So it, it helps that sense as well. So it, it's difficult, but you have to be able to manage it. What handicap are you playing off? Scratch. Very good. Very, very so, good. The other thing, the other thing which I'll which I'll talk about, just going back to the last question, if if you'll allow me, is um certainly from a from a male point of view. Um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of bravado when it comes to um, men and us not being able to talk about problems that we have. So in my sense, it was finishing sport. It was a little bit lost in life, not knowing where to go, not knowing what to do. And depression can creep up on you or sadness can creep up on you. And you can feel a little bit lost. And I think as, as men, we don't want to admit that sometimes. Certainly to our friends, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign that we shouldn't, you know, open up. You know, we, we can't be seen as, a, as, as weak. Um, our friends might take the mickey out of us or try and take, you know, have a laugh at our expense. But if you can find someone to talk about if you've got a problem, you know, that's a problem half. And then, you know, things will then start getting easier. So it's a stigma that, you know, we need to break down. It's a stigma that we need to continue to break down. But it's also, I certainly think from, from a generational point of view, 
we need to change and it's your generation that needs to feel comfortable if you do have a problem, whether it's bullying, whether it's home, whether it's whatever it may be, that you do feel you can go and speak to the teacher, maybe not speak to your parents or speak to a counsellor. So I think it's vitally important that you feel that that's okay. That's okay to do that. And um, and if your mates are all right with that, then they're good mates and they're the ones you want around you. So, um, so yeah. So bear that in mind if you ever have a problem. And plus your teacher's got my email now, so you can email me and I'll help you. Yeah, it's very well said. Um, so of your football career, is there a moment, trophy or cup that you're most proud of? Well, I didn't win much. So although I did play in every final, unfortunately I always come second. Um, <laughs> uh, moment. Probably a few. I think make my, my debut for Liverpool scoring cop end special. Um, then it would be then it would be playing for Ireland against Norway in the World Cup Giant Stadium. Like standing doing the, the national anthem with with my mates, with my teammates. Hundred thousand fans in that stadium. Just unbelievable. Um and then it would be scoring the goal against Holland, which meant so much to you know, not just to me, um, the teammates, the fans, the Irish public, the nation, um, and the position it put us in to then go on and play in another World Cup. Because I'm sure you'll agree. I don't. Which would you watch the Euros? Would you be old enough to all that? So you kind of know, yeah. You know the passion of the Euros, wouldn't you? Mm. Well, a World Cup's like ten times better than that. So hopefully, Stephen Kenny can pull his finger out and get us to a World Cup, and you'll experience that. Because that's something special. Yeah. Um, small bit off topic, but how did you find school growing up? And is there any other <laughs> for young people who are having trouble in school right now? How did I find school? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you could actually call my school a school, to be honest. Um, again, different generation. My generation of school would be teachers would throw chalk and chalk white duster things they would throw them at you or slap you with a ruler i'm sure that doesn't go on in your school so my mine was a little bit different than yours um detention slipper <laughs> you get whacked with the slipper um yeah different cultures different <laughs> different ages uh, i was always i was the sporty kid in school so i'd be you know i'd be the, the um how would I describe? I'd be like the if it was an American school, I'd be like the quarterback in school. I'd be that kid who'd like I, I got my laurels, my braids. Um, I got I was head boy. Oh, that sounds like terrible, doesn't it? Head boy. I was head boy. Um, I, so sporty wise, I I excelled at sports academically. Um just to put you in the picture of what I thought academically, how clever I was. Uh, obviously, you, you've heard of BC and AD, BC before Christ. Yeah, yeah. I thought AD stood for after dinosaurs. <laughs> so so there you go. There, there's there's my academic level. <laughs> so, yeah, not, not the brightest. So, struggled academically. Uh, when you say... In school, people having problems. What problems? What problems are you 
um, referring to? Like what? Um, like concentrating or being bullied, anything. I think that goes back to what I spoke about before. Um, you know, not being afraid to. And I know it's easier said than done. You know, I'm going through a situation at the minute with somebody that I know where their child's being bullied in school and he has kept it a secret for a, a long time and it, it's developed into problems with him, like physically. Um, and, you know, it's got to the stage where the bullying has got that bad that now the police are involved. So, you know, we want to we wanna try and stop that before, you know, these this happens and it's it, it's a lot easier to say this is what you should do and that's what you should do but the outcome is is always the same and the bully never wins so you might as well go from the beginning rather than let it last for two three four five six months because it, it only hurts impacts you and hurts you more so you know if i could give any advice bullying i would straight away tell a teacher i found i had confidence in and i could trust um, I would speak to them because they would be a friend and, you know, they would have your back and your trust. So I would certainly speak to a teacher first and then I would take it from there. Um, as in concentrating, well, there's lots of different factors. You might, you might be in love, might you? And I, you know, I, I don't know what the answer would be. If you're in love, it's hard to concentrate if you're in love. So... Yeah, but at your age, the you know, sack her off. Don't worry about it. There's plenty. When you get older, there's plenty of time for that. <laughs> what did you think of the match last night? Did you watch it? Did you? What do you think? Um, I've got to be honest. I was busy last night. Um, obviously, I've read up on the um, on the performance and the result. It looked like a decent performance. Um, you know, to to go. To go toe to toe with France is, is a pretty good achievement. You know, losing one nil, you know, it's still a defeat. But I think if you look, I think if you look in the broad terms of things, I think the last eight games is is four wins, three defeats, and a draw. So you would suggest, okay, the opposition is not the greatest quality, but there's some good performances in amongst the, the good teams that we played like last night. Yeah. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I think Stephen has got a grip of the job. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some great talented young players coming through, um, which hopefully bodes well for the future and we could, you know, hopefully qualify for something. Um, just before we finish it up now, we were doing research on you and uh, we, we found out that you had a nickname, Trigger. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us where you got that from and who gave it to you and all that. Um, so we were we were in America for the World Cup in in nineteen ninety four, and uh, Jack gave us the afternoon off. So we we all went out, probably about sixteen of us went out for um, some refreshments and some food. So we went we went to one of these American diners, and I was a single lad at the time, um, loving life, playing in the World Cup, representing the country, and looking a lot fresher than what I am now. So um, I kind of took a shine to the waitress who was working in there. So I plucked up all my courage and I spoke to the waitress and I said to her, uh, hi, what's your name? She told me her name. How old are you? She told me your age. So I said to her, where are you from? 
So she said to me, I'm from Pennsylvania. And I went, ah, 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 like Dracula. And she went, no, that's Transylvania. And then she <laughs> called me a name. <laughs> and John Aldridge turned around to me and he went, did you really just say that to her? And I went, yeah. And he went, you are the thickest person I've ever met in my life. He said, so the character from Only Fools and Horses, who's the, the thick kid in, in, the, in the sitcom, is called Trigger. Yeah. So my nickname, my nickname is uh, is after Trigger from the character from Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> so that's how I get my nickname there. Listen, that's all for now. Thanks for your time, your stories, and your advice. It's it's been an honor. We really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Is there anything? Is there anything you really, really want to ask me, but you were frightened of of maybe asking because you think I might answer it, or the teachers said no, or? <laughs> Yeah. Um, how on, did you manage to get sent off? <laughs> <laughs> how did I manage to get sent off in every every game? That very nice, yeah. I got sent off once for every club I played for, and yeah, uh, um, it's just. Listen, I think I played over five hundred games. So to get sent off only five or six times is. Is a pretty good percentage or ratio, wouldn't you agree? So I'm kind of like, all right, with that. I should have been sent off for plenty more things that I did. But back then, there weren't as many cameras and VAR wasn't around and there weren't so many eyes on the game. So I got away with a lot of stuff, as everyone did back then. But, um, but yeah, I'm quite happy with that record. Right, is there, any, is there one more question you want to ask me that, that you don't think I would have answered? Well, I think what we were wondering about was the one with Stephen Cluxton. Now, you do not have to answer if you don't want to, and you can cut it out, but that's kind of what we were wondering, yeah. And if you want to cut it out, if you don't want to tell us, that's fine. But, yeah. Stephen Cluxton. Okay, so we, we got we got asked to play in a, a charity football match, a charity football match, and um, we came over, a few of us to play, and we kick off. And there was this kid running around with the ball and he was thinking he was a little bit special. And I said to my mate, I went, who's he? So my mate went, so he's the Dublin goalkeeper, the Gaelic goalkeeper. And I'm like, Gaelic? He's like, yeah. So is he the, he's the Gaelic goalkeeper for Dublin, isn't he? Yeah. Not the hurling, yeah. he's the Gaelic. Yeah. So, so he was kind of a bit like having himself a little bit. And so he was getting on my mate's nerves. So my mate said to him, he said to me, he went, I'm going to try and smash him at his second half. I'm going to try and get stuck into him. So he said, back me up. So I said, okay. So my mate tried to kick him in the second half and missed. And then I said something to him and he said something back to me. And then I swear, right, I don't remember much about what else happened, right? Because he hit me with this left hook. And you know when you see these boxes on the telly where the legs go to jelly and you think, oh, they're, they're taking a fall, right? I swear, my brain and my legs stopped communicating because my legs just turned to jelly, right? <laughs> and I, I fell on the floor and I got up, I beat the counter, got up on eight. And um, the referee came over and it like people got in between us. And uh, he sent us off, the pair of us off in a charity match. We've been sent off in a charity football match. So I go into the dressing room and um, there was a, an old fella who was like, he was like the caretaker of the dressing rooms. So next thing, there's a knock at the door. So I just got out the shower. I was getting dry. I put my clothes on. I opened the door and it was this old fella. And he said to me, 
He said, listen, Stephen Cluxton wants to come in and have a word with you. And I was like, Jesus, he's going to like absolutely knock me out here. And none, <laughs> I'm on my own in the dressing room. And I went, mate, don't let him in. I locked that door till the players come in. And I literally hid in the dressing room till he, till, uh, till we finished the game and all the lads come in the dressing <laughs> room. But, um, but I've seen him, I've seen him since. And, you know, we've made up and, you know, I, I really admire, you know, what he's done in his game. You know, he's an absolute legend of, of the Gaelic and, um, fair play to him. And, uh, what I will say is if he ever wants to give up Gaelic and go into boxing, then he's, he can certainly <laughs> have a career because he's got a great left hook. So there you go. There's the Stephen Clough story. Who um, was the mate that uh, tried to kick him but missed? <laughs> Don't mind me asking. Are you, wait, say that again. Who was your friend who um, Stephen Cluxton was on his nerves? Oh, when he came uh, it was Don Hutchinson who played for West Ham, Everton and played for Liverpool. It was Don, yeah. He's my best mate. Um, we're very close. And yeah. So I took one for the team. Thanks a million to Jason Marketeer for coming on the podcast. We had an amazing time making this episode and it was great crack chatting to him. Tune in next week for another episode. Thank you.